out those through a triangle illustration, those, those three aspects of worship, community, and mission, and really led us through how the gospel's at the center of that. And, and, and really that's, that, that lesson was sort of the, the overview of the whole thing that we're going to be doing these next several Sunday nights. And we're just trying to unpack that. So Jonathan last week started with the gospel, which is where we should always start and introduced the two different ways we can view the one gospel, uh, that those two ways, either being as an individual message of salvation God is holy. We are sinful. Christ came into the world to live and to die for us, to be raised from the dead. As we, when we transfer our trust to him and repent of our sins, we're forgiven and are given eternal life and receive a righteous record from God that belongs to Jesus. And God justifies us. That's the individual message of salvation. But we can also speak of the gospel. It's not a different gospel, but it's another angle on the same gospel as the whole storyline of scripture, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, what God is doing in the whole world to reconcile all things to himself uh, and, and unveil and uphold and display the supremacy of Christ over all things. And it's really my purpose tonight is to talk about what if we don't hold the tension of those two aspects of the gospel, the individual message and the more worldwide good news. If we don't hold those things uh, together, what is going to result is going to be a perversion of the gospel and an imbalanced church. And so I hope to unpack why I think that. I want to do three things and I realize my time is short, so I'm going to try to pack as much of this in as I can. Um, but I want to do three things tonight. I want to talk about, first of all, the priority of the gospel. In other words, what, how does scripture place an emphasis on the gospel as the central message um, of the church? So the priority of the gospel, I want to talk about that. That should be familiar territory for us. And then I want to talk about the perversion of the gospel. In other words, what does not holding these two aspects of the gospel together, the, the story aspect or the king, gospel of the kingdom, the way Jonathan described it, and the gospel of the cross, if we don't hold those things together, what sort of perversion can take place? And then finally, I want to talk about the preservation of the gospel and how holding those two things together, what kind of fruit will that produce? So that's where we're headed this evening. First of all, uh, let me say a word about the priority of the gospel. I want to give you three quotes up front and then we're going to look at scripture because it really doesn't matter what these guys say, but these, this, these quotes are good. Martin Luther in his preface, preface to the commentary on Galatians says the following about the priority of the gospel. He says, quote, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. Don't you love the way Luther describes that? I mean, Luther was all about a fight and uh, he was all about a fight for the gospel. And he recognizes the need to beat the gospel into the heads of Christians continually. Another quote comes from CJ Mahaney known very well for his gospel centrality. He says, if there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's the gospel. And I don't mean just passionate about sharing it with others. I mean, passionate about thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, allowing it to color the way we look at the world. Only one thing can be in first importance to each of us and only the gospel ought to be. And then Mike Bullmore, another pastor, 
when asked the question, what's the greatest, most crying need in the church today? Now, if you're a pastor and you get asked that question, the best answer is, I have no idea. You know, I don't know what the greatest, most pressing crying need in the church today is, but I'll attempt to give a response of a major need that's always a need of the church in any generation. And here's how he responds. We don't just need a biblical theological literacy, although we do need that, but we need a functioning gospel. I believe a local church is healthy to the degree that one, its pastor teachers are able to accurately, effectively, and broadly bring the gospel to bear specifically into the real lives of people. And two, the people have a deep personal understanding of and deep personal appreciation for the gospel so as to be able to live in the good of the gospel daily. One of the greatest challenges, Bullmore says, and yet one of the most important tasks of pastoral ministry is to help people actually see the connections between the gospel and the thinking and behavior that make up our everyday lives. We know well the centrality of the gospel message, but in order for it to have a functional centrality, it must be clearly, carefully, and consistently connected to the real issues, issues of thought and conduct of people's lives. This kind of ministry is most greatly needed. And really, that ministry is what the Apostle Paul does in the Bible. It's a ministry of taking the message of the gospel and applying it in specific ways to different churches. He does it in the letter to Galatians. He does it in the letter to the Ephesians. He does it in the Philippians. He does it in First and Second Thessalonians. He brings the message of the gospel and connects it to behaviors, patterns of conduct, ways of thinking, and says, this is the way you ought to think because the gospel is true. This is the way the gospel makes a difference in that area of your life. And so those three quotes emphasize the priority of the gospel. Well, what about scripture? Well, scripture just stresses this over and over again. Let me just give you a smattering of passages. You don't have to look them up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through them fairly quickly. The first is scripture places an emphasis upon the gospel as the primary message and the message of first importance. You know the language well, don't you? First Corinthians fifteen three, Paul writes, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. So if you guys don't believe that there are certain doctrines more important than other doctrines, we're in bad shape. Because Paul says that the gospel and the message of the gospel, Christ died for our sins, is the message that is of first importance. It is the most important message. John five, thirty nine and forty. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you believe that in them you have eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me. Scripture is given for relationship. Scripture is given to teach us about Jesus and to help us relate to him. It's all about the gospel. It's about who Jesus is, why he came, what, what happened as a result of his coming, how we're brought into relationship with God through him. The scriptures are given to us for that end. And Jesus says, you study the scriptures, but you study them in such a way divorced from me. We can't do that. We must study the scriptures in relationship with Jesus and for the ultimate goal of relationship with Jesus. Also, to underscore the priority of the gospel, the Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, familiar passage. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So there very clearly, Paul says the gospels for Christians, it's not just the power of God for unbelievers, but it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel continues to have this functioning power given to it by God 
to complete our whole salvation. You know what we need to be completely saved? The gospel. The gospel. That's what we need more than anything. What other message has God tied his power to than the gospel? Colossians 1 6 underscores this and says it's the gospel bearing fruit in our lives is the way we grow as Christians. Paul writes in Colossians 1 6, all over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. No, he doesn't say all over the world, Christians are growing. He says all over the world, the gospel is growing. Because the gospel is the power that causes growth. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing, not just as it's doing among you since you heard it and understood God's grace and all of its truth. So gospel gets planted and bears fruit in us as we increasingly understand it. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1.6. Just as you heard it, and this is bearing fruit in you since you understood God's grace and all its truth. So as we understand the gospel and God's grace and all its truth, which I think is a summary of the gospel, that works in us to bear fruit. It shouldn't surprise us because the gospel is the power of God. Colossians 1.27 and 28, another passage, Paul says, Him we proclaim, not abstract doctrine. Him we proclaim, teaching and admonishing everyone so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Well, that's because everyone gets matured in Christ because him is, he is proclaimed. So we mature as we come to understand the gospel, Jesus, who he is, what he's done. And Paul made that his goal. So the gospel's primary, the gospel's powerful. The gospel's also pivotal. It's pivotal. Without it, the church crumbles. First Peter chapter two, verses four to six. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So how does the church get built? By coming to him, 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 coming to him. Church is built. Well, how's that work? Why does that happen? For it stands in scripture. First Peter two, six, behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That cornerstone language is all important because it implies that that's the stone that holds the whole wall up. And it's as we come to him that we're built. So that means that the gospel's pivotal to the growth of the church and development of the church. And if Jesus as cornerstone is pulled out and other things are placed in greater emphasis or or other things are made priority, the church is going, the walls are coming down. The walls are coming down. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 and 20. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So we as pastors, we think like this. I mean, we, we think, how is the church built? How is it, how is the power of God made operative in the people of God? And scripture is really clear. It's the gospel of God. Matthew six sixteen. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church. What's, what's that? <laughs> you're Peter on this rock. I'm going to build my church. What, what are you on? What are you going to build your church? Jesus? I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. I'm going to build the church on myself. I'm going to build the church on your confession of who I really am. It's not 
Peter himself who's getting the church built on him. It's the confession of Peter. And it's the gates of hell that will not prevail against that. It's the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that is built upon Christ. The gospel is also not only primary, powerful, pivotal, but permanent. It's the only thing that will last. First Corinthians chapter three, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, Paul says, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, I know some of you have heard that passage preached and it's preached primarily to individual Christians and it's talking about reward in heaven. That's not the main point of the passage. The main point of the text is he's writing to pastors and leaders in the church about the way they build the church. And he's saying, if you don't build on Jesus, which implies that pastors can build on things other than Jesus. If you don't build intentionally upon Jesus, your ministry will be burned up in the end. It won't have any eternal lasting significance. I take that seriously. I don't want the things that I pour my life into, and I know you don't either, the things that we pour our lives and our time into, we don't want that to be burned up in the end. Well, Paul says that if we're not careful and we're not like skilled master builders who really think out the construction of this building, then, we're gonna, then, then we may very well be building on a bad foundation on something other than Jesus. And if we don't do that, it's not going to last which is why Paul wrote in the previous chapter to this statement. This was from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, why he wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because that was the main thing he wanted to make sure he was building. He didn't say, I resolved to know nothing among you except the doctrine of God's sovereign grace. That's important. That's part of the gospel. I resolved to know nothing among you except this really catchy, inventive, stylistic church service. No, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was that, that was Pip, that was foundational to Paul. That was the priority. So the implication is obviously as a church that we're a gospel formed people. That's the language that Jonathan, Pastor Jonathan used last week. We're a gospel formed people. And that's not just a initial thing. That's an ongoing thing. We as the church are not just formed by the gospel. We are, we're brought together by the gospel. We're all saved as a result of believing the gospel, but then that message has to continue to have a first importance kind of, you know, ethic in our church. If we're going to continue to be built up and strengthened, strengthened, um, as God would have us. So we never graduate from the gospel. We don't get beyond it into something more advanced. It's not, you know, to, to use another illustration, it's not, it's not the first step in the stairway of truth, but rather it's more like the hub in the center of the wheel. So if we think of the gospel as like the first step 
in, in, the, in the stairway of truth, then we've got the wrong metaphor. We need to think of it as the hub of a wheel that without it, nothing else goes. Or if you prefer another illustration, the gospel is not just a class in like the building of truth. Like we have the gospel class. Sometimes churches use that as a membership class. Like this is our gospel class. Well, I hope that's not your only gospel class. I hope, I hope that you more think not just the gospel as a class in the whole building, but as the whole building being the gospel. And then there are different classes. It's a totally different way of, of, of looking at it. And this is why it's helpful when Tim Keller says things like the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. It's not the ABCs. The gospel is deep enough to use another illustration. The gospel is deep enough for a child to wade in and an elephant to swim in. It's both. The gospel has a simplistic element to it, which is wonderful. And the gospel has a depth and complexity to it that will take eternity to plumb. So this is why Paul says in Acts 20, verse 32, that it's the word of grace, the gospel that he gave to them, comma, which can build you up. I mean, this is just crystal clear in the Bible that we have have to be conscious and deliberate, especially as pastors, that we are building on Jesus Christ which is why the gospel is the priority. So the question then becomes, how does that get perverted? And really it can get perverted in, in lots of ways. I mean, Pastor Ted hinted at many of them this morning when he talked about the ways in which false gospels come up and things are added to the gospel or subtracted from the gospel. And that's true. That's a perversion of the gospel. And, and you know, Paul, we know what he does with those kind of gospels. He pronounces anathema on them. He says, those gospels be damned. They're false. But there's another way in which it's more subtle that if we don't keep together the idea of the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the cross and hold those together, that there can actually be another form, a more subtle form of perversion that takes place through overemphasis or imbalance. So let me, let me talk about these a little bit. First of all, what if there is an overemphasis on the gospel of the cross to the neglect of the gospel of the kingdom? In other words, what if we only focus on gospel power and not gospel purpose? I'm, I'm saying gospel power is God, man, Christ response, which is the gospel of the cross. And gospel purpose is creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Or we could say the gospel of the cross is the message that we're saved by. And the gospel of the kingdom is the message that we're saved for. And I hope that that'll make more sense here as we work through. So if we only focus on the gospel as power, God, man, Christ's response, and not the gospel purpose of creation, fall, redemption, consummation will tend toward a gospel that's only about individuals and will miss the mission. We'll miss the mission because we're hyper-focused on individuals. And I'm not, I'm, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we don't need to focus on individuals. Obviously we do. It's the message by which we're saved and without which no one can be saved. So we better be preaching the gospel to individuals. We better be telling them how to get into the kingdom and how to get right with God. I'm just saying, if we don't, step back from that 
and say also the gospel includes the whole good news of Christianity, there can be a distortion that takes place. And what's the distortion? I don't know all of the distortions that can't, can take place, but I'm going to give you three that, that may take place. One is individualism. You have a culture of individualism, which created because it's all about what God has done for me in Christ. It's, fo- it's a hyper focus on me. And as a result of that, we can create a church culture that's very individualistic and consumeristic, even with the biblical gospel. God's loved me and saved me. So what's in it for me? And we don't understand that we're saved by the gospel for the gospel. So we just fall back into the narcissistic, entitled, self-absorbed, social media saturated lifestyle of our prevailing culture. And the last thing we need in the church is reinforcing individualism, especially in the West. Individualism plagues North America today. Our self-admiration is fed from childhood. In elementary school, we're told we can do anything and be anything we want. Dream big. You can be a supermodel, rock star. Everybody, all my sixth grade boys believe they're all going to be professional athletes. The reality is we can't become anything. But the self-esteem culture insists that we must delude children into denying any sense of limits. Seemingly harmless streams of encouragement create a generation obsessed with itself, obsessed with image and fame, believing deeply that they're special and unique. David Brooks recently said, quote, we're an overconfident species in America. American students no longer perform particularly well in global math tests, but Americans are among the world's leaders when it comes to thinking we're really good at math. This is manifested in our church shopping, what's in it for me in evangelicalism. Churches have to give people what they want in order to compete. No, I mean, how many churches is, are people going to track by saying, we got one thing. Okay, we have the gospel and tons of opportunities to give your life away. But that's a church. That's a church. Now, I understand there's a place to be ministered to. Don't get me wrong. But the ethos, the way of thinking of the church exists to minister to me is wrong. It's wrong. Churches have to give people, like I said, what they want in order to compete. And by doing so, we unwittingly reinforce pride and preference and offer people something different than the gospel. Here's, here's the reality, brothers and sisters. I want our church to disappoint people who aren't interested in gospel worship, community, and mission. Let them be disappointed if they're coming here and wanting something other than to serve and give their lives away for Jesus. I'm done. I'm done. (laughs) I want to lovingly shepherd those people out. Individualism. Also, sentimentalism can be, can be a, something that comes as a result of this hyper-focus upon um, the gospel in an individualistic way. We can take a personal experience of the gospel, and then we begin to privatize our faith. So we're not zealous about gossiping about Jesus to other people. And we begin to think the gospel's all about us and not all about God. And this can lead to a kind of a self-absorbed, sentimental approach to the gospel. 
And again, all these, all these elements are just perversion. It's just a little bit of twisting. It's a little bit of imbalance. It's a little bit of forgetting that the gospel has saved us to something and not just from something, right? So I'm saying it, we're saved from the wrath of, wrath of God, but we're saved to the mission of God. So if we, and I'm saying if we leave off, we're saved to the mission of God. What we create is individualistic stuff and sentimental people who feel really warm feelings about Jesus and, and, but, and, but are really deep down just consumers of Christian goods and services. And then there's another thing that comes as a result of focusing on individual God, man, Christ response. And that's rationalism. In other words, we can begin when we emphasize teaching the gospel and making sure we understand that that we're saved by the gospel. We're saved from the wrath of God by the work of Jesus through faith and repentance. And we start to emphasize those things and we have to teach all that stuff, but we don't also emphasize that God has saved us from something to something. Then we can think it's all about just knowing the gospel. Like we just got to know the gospel better. And so we just inform our minds about with knowledge and doctrine, particularly about the atonement which is great. <laughs> and then you take a five year long sermon series in Romans, not picking on John Piper, but we strive to know all about God, but none of that gets fleshed out and in, in serving to give our lives away for others. So the church is a place where heads are filled, hearts are warm, but hands are just idle. Hands are just idle. And you're in the church if you got the right answers and you're out if you don't or you ask too many questions. So discipleship then becomes all about information transfer. And when discipleship is no longer about a way of living, but about information to be learned, a compartmentalization can take place that results in hypocrisy. We don't practice confession, faith, and repentance, but we sure do see them as truths to be defended and argued about. We circle the wagons, we become defensive in our posture towards the world rather and engaged in the mission of God to take the gospel to others. So that's, if, if we focus only on what the gospel has saved us from, that's what I'm calling the gospel of the cross, which is true, but we don't also focus on why we've been saved and what the gospel has saved us to, then there can create an imbalance. But there can also be an imbalance the other way, which is when you only focus on what the gospel has saved you to and not what the gospel has saved you from. So let me, let me talk about that now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on after everybody tonight. I'm just going to pick on everybody. But let's talk about if we only focus on the gospel purpose but miss the gospel power. Then we'll tend toward doing good works and acts of service without the power of God. We'll believe it's up to us to change the world and become more acceptable and significant to God by doing more. In this case, the mission of the gospel is not propelled by love and faith but it's dependent on us. And that can result in three things. And we typically see this. Let me just, let me just lay this out real fast, really fast. Caught that PT. So you don't have to correct my grammar later on. (laughs) I love you. Um, But the gospel, the, when we, when we talk about the gospel of uh, gospel of the cross and, and the individual aspect of it, um, there can be there can be problems with that too. But when we focus on the gospel purpose, there can be problems with that. And typically, the the people that focus, you know, the problems that that come out of focusing on what we're saved that we're saved by the gospel, the gospel of the cross. When we only focus on that, that typically shows up in conservative Christianity, conservative Christianity, and it can become individualistic and 
and, and rationalistic and sentimental and all that. But this other part where we only focus on, you know, what the gospel saved us to, that can kind of show up in more liberal streams of Christianity or what we think of as more liberal. It's not exclusively to that because they focus on good works and, you know, doing nice things and serving people and all that stuff. But they don't, they don't have the, they don't have the gospel of the cross. So none of the people are saved or at least maybe, maybe they're not depending on what they're believing, but they're doing a lot of good things in the name of Christ. So if we only focus on the gospel of the cross or sorry, the gospel of the kingdom and, and the gospel purpose, what the gospel saved us to, what can result from that? A couple of things. One is moralism. We turn the gospel into do's and don'ts. We just create a works-based salvation. And in this way, we'll see the cross maybe as a way of getting a fresh start, but it leaves, but then we're left up to ourselves to get it right from then on. And we don't see the gospel as an ongoing power in our lives that we need to grow in grace and all that. So we just, uh, you know, we're sinners in need of the gospel at first, but then once we get saved then we're on our own, that kind of, that kind of mentality, or we start to gauge our spirituality by our performance. So when you ask a Christian how their spiritual life is going, they don't say, you know, leaning on free grace, relying upon Jesus, repenting, believing every day. They say, uh, okay, I've, did I do my quiet times all this week? Uh, I'm doing good, brother. I mean, I'm, I'm real spiritual. I've been praying and uh, I've re- even read a book this month. You want to come see my shelf? Look, look at all the books I've got on my shelf. See that? I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm spiritual. And we start to base gospel growth on our performance. Uh, Daniel Montgomery, pastor of Sojourn, says this, Sojourn Community Church in Louisville. He says, a place where we often see this in our church is in our membership interviews. He says, in membership classes, we seek to clarify and define the gospel. And in the follow-up interviews for those who want to become members, we try to ask questions that will demonstrate how our members are putting it all together. We ask them to share their stories in the gospel, and most people do that well. Almost everyone gets tripped up, though, when we ask them how their spiritual life is going. Faces turn white, eyes drop, and they quickly say they're not doing enough. They're not reading the Bible enough. They're not praying enough. It's all about their doing. That's how Christians define their spiritual life. It's about my performance, my ability to keep up with whatever I deem is expected of me as a cultural Christian. Rarely when asked about their spiritual lives do people immediately talk about God's grace and how thankful they are to be getting away with everything they've ever done or neglected to do, while at the same time being deeply broken over their sin and desiring to fight it. See, we're not talking about license here. We're talking about an appropriation of grace that is motivated, that's motivating love and joy and not duty and burden. And then he says, the reality is, is that when people ask how our spiritual life is doing, our reflex answer, no matter what else is happening in our lives, should be to say that it's great, not because we've performed well and not because our circumstances are good or because we just advanced in some way, but because our life is hidden with Christ and God and we're completely accepted by the Father through his free grace. So there's a different, there's a different shift there of focus. It's a focus on the gospel and Jesus' performance for us. And I know I need to quit, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through these last two very quickly, and hopefully in the last two minutes, and then we'll come sing, and maybe I can come up for like the last five minutes before we get into prayer and just kind of tack on this last thing, and then we're going to be done. So I don't want to let the kids miss their program, though. All right, the last two, very quickly, that can result from uh, emphasizing the gospel purpose while not, 
while missing the gospel power can be syncretism or the blending of things. We, we, can, we begin to look indistinguishable for the world because what sets us apart is not what we believe and who we serve, but we're just doing the same things that other people are doing, you know, but no, with, no, with no distinct message and distinct person behind it. So mission becomes about something bigger than what God has really called it to be. So we end up, you know, thinking of mission, not as making disciples of Jesus Christ, but as just being good humanitarians and recycling and economic development, social justice and political action, all that stuff. And we attempt to make the gospel more palatable. At least we can be tempted to do that. But let's just be really clear about something. We will never church make the gospel so attractive that everyone wants to believe it. (laughs) That's never ever going to happen. Now that doesn't mean we can be lazy and unfaithful, but it it is the reality. So as we, so we have to realize that. And then finally, activism can become an issue too. doing things for God. Um, you know, moving the mission forward, making the world a better place. But if you've lost the gospel power and you're not emphasizing the gospel of the cross anymore, you might as well be the Peace Corps, you know, helping people here and smoothing their path to hell. But without the cross, people will be managed and tended, but they will not be transformed. It'll be like mowing over the yard that has so many weeds in it You know, they're coming back, but you don't want to deal with the root weed problem. But, you know, it looks really pretty for a couple of days after you mow over it and wipe out all the weeds. And you look at that. That's a great lawn. Look at that. But that lawn isn't changed. Those weeds are coming right back. So if we emphasize, you know, the purpose of the gospel, but don't emphasize the need for radical conversion and heart change and and a transfer of trust and lordship to Jesus, then... People won't be changed and we'll just be mowing weeds, mowing, mowing the grass on a very, very weedy lawn. Let me close this in prayer. Father, this has been, I know, a, a, very, a very swift and quick overview, but I, I trust that one thing is crystal clear, that the gospel has got to be central. That we are a gospel-formed people, a gospel-shaped people. We must live uh, in dependence upon Jesus but at the same time, recognizing that he has called us to take up our cross and follow him. So help us to think clearly about the, the, about the gospel, not only saving us from something, but saving us to something. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.
Then Pastor Jonathan's going to come up. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to apply this very quickly, and then watch. We're going to watch a brief video, uh, just about it's about two or three minutes long, and then Pastor Jonathan's going to come up and and lead us uh, in our prayer time of prayer. So, I've talked about the priority of the gospel. We looked at lots of text, and then we talked about the perversion of the gospel through imbalance. Uh, focusing on either how the gospel has saved us or how we're saved by the gospel and only focusing on that or focusing on uh, only what the gospel saved us for. And we, can, we need to keep both of those together. So, that, so the answer is how do you preserve the gospel? You, 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 you hold it like that. You, you try as much as possible to, to hold together that the gospel is an individual message by which we are saved in believing, and out of that, the gospel has called us into a greater kingdom purpose that we are to give our lives to. We're saved by the gospel for the gospel, and we must not focus on either being saved for the gospel or being saved by the gospel. We have to hold both of those together. And what will happen if we are striving to faithfully hold those things together? I think we will create the kind of people that Tully and Chavidjan describes 
in this story, which beautifully illustrates what happens when a person gets the gospel, gets that we're saved by free grace for the purposes of Jesus. When we get that, here's the story. There's a story told from Civil War days before America's slaves were freed about a northerner who went to a slave auction and purchased a young slave girl. As they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the girl after just purchasing her at the auction and told her, you're free. You're free. With amazement, that girl responded, you mean I'm free? You mean I'm free? I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said, free to do whatever you want. And to say whatever I want to say? Yes, anything. Anything you want to say. And to be whatever I want to be? Yep, anything you want to be. And even, even, even this, even go where I want to go? Yes, even go where you want to go. He said with a smile, you're free to go wherever you'd like. She looked at him intently and replied, and I want to go with you. I want to go with you. That is the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's what a person who gets free grace experiences. They don't say, fine, I'll walk away from Jesus. If I get to do whatever I want, they're going to say, somebody who treats me with that kind of grace, I'm sticking by their side for the rest of my life. And so holding those things together, that's what we're after. We're after gospel transformed people, not moral people. (laughs) We're after people whose hearts melt because of the grace they've received in Christ and say, 70 years, giving my life away for him. Oh, give me 700 more. That's what we want. Not griping and complaining about something else that we have to do for him. So we have to get the gospel deep in our hearts. You know how, how we know we don't have the gospel deep in, deep in our hearts? Because of how resident we are to serve him. How resident we are to serve him. And so I want to close with this video. This is Pastor Ray Ortland. He's an older man now. His, some of you may have known his dad, um, Ray Ortland Sr., who is a, a famous, uh, somewhat famous pastor in California. But this is his son, who's an older man now, pastoring in Nashville. And this is on their uh, church website. I was just so struck by it. This is what they want. The, their mission in Nashville is to make the real Jesus unignorable. Because we live in the Bible Belt. Jesus can be ignored around here. He's heard so much. But they want to make Jesus unignorable. And so this is their, their church is called Emmanuel Church. And this is what he calls the Emmanuel Mantra. The thing that they say again and again and again. And then Jonathan, after the video plays, you can come. In our church, Emmanuel Nashville, we have what we call the Emmanuel Mantra. It goes like this. One, I'm a complete idiot. Two, my future is incredibly bright. Three, anybody can get in on this. So it's simple. One, I'm a complete idiot. There's not been one nanosecond in all my life when God looked at me and said, ooh, that's impressive. And how God sees me is the way I really am. So there's no excuse for a human being like me. But... I kind of know that already. What's surprising is the second part. Uh, 
my future is incredibly bright. Uh, why? Because Jesus lived the perfect life I should have lived, and he did that for me. And he died the guilty death under the wrath of God. I don't want to die, and he did that for me. All he asks of me now, all I can do, is receive his mercy with the empty hands of faith. And when I do, that's when God starts giving me the kind of future Jesus deserves. Um, that's incredibly bright. Uh, and because it's all mercy, then it can be for anybody at all, however idiotic. It can be for you, if it's not too far beneath you.